listening to In Situ Science. Each episode we meet a different scientist and find out what it is they do and why they do it. This episode was put together with the help of the Australasian Society for the Study of Animal Behaviour. And this time I joined Dr. Luke Holman for what may be one of the worst pool games ever played. We're here at the conference of the Australasian Society for the Study of Animal Behaviour and I'm joined for a game of pool with Dr. Luke Holman. Luke, thanks for coming along. Thank you, great to be here. <laughs> Would you like to break? Oh, sure, yeah. <laughs> You're fit in. Yeah. All right. So depending on how good we are at pool, this could be a very short interview. Mm-hmm. Or if you're anything like me, we'll be here for four hours. Yeah. <laughs> but I wanted to start off the interview um, talking about numbers. Uh-huh. Because you're a scientist and you work on all sorts of different animals and mm-hmm. their genetics and behavior and different things. But mm-hmm. I think what makes you stand out as a scientist is your, your mathematical approach to oh, answering yeah. questions. Oh, thanks. <laughs> and I feel like zoology is one of those fields where people love the natural world and love animals, and then they start a science degree and they go, oh, crap, there's yeah. numbers involved. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then I, f- I find myself doing that and I feel stupid because it's science. Of course there's numbers. Yeah. <laughs> so how do you approach this huh. when you're teaching students and explaining things? Oh, I guess, yeah, that's, um, that's a good point. I think a lot of people get into this for the animals and rather than for yeah, the f- things that they see as kind of impediments, like having to do statistics on all the data they've collected or that. Yeah, it's, it's a tough one. I certainly, I, I'm pretty new to teaching, to be honest. Uh, like a lot of scientists, you, um, I, I just got a job at the University of Melbourne, by which mm-hmm. I mean a, a permanent faculty job with a combination of teaching and research. Yeah. Um, but uh, you're kind of often hired into these jobs on the basis of doing a lot of research um, and teaching often falls by the wayside until suddenly you're, <laughs> you're in charge of a, 2,200 students. Like, what sort of stuff um, are you teaching then? I'm teaching a, a mixture of genetics and, uh, and more zoology focused subjects like yeah. animal behavior. I'm going to just try to plug this ball. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> no. Yeah, I meant to do that. <laughs> so I sunk us small as well as the white ball. Does that not count as anything? Oh, did you, um, which did you, are my spots? Or, yeah, I guess. I go bigs and smalls. Ah. Uh, uh, um, it's like yeah. one of these ones. I'm one of those ones. Okay. okay. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> um, man, I can't multitask at all. <laughs> um, this is great. Yeah, yeah, science, it's uh, definitely, I think it's, it's good to introduce students to um, the concept that they'll be that science is quite a lot about uh, the data and the numbers more than you might think. Mm. Um, depending depending on what you do, I mean, a lot of people do much more fieldwork focused biology than me. Like I like you do, you disappear into the jungle for months at a time, and I think <laughs> the core skills there are, you know, um, dealing with the the difficulties of working somewhere you're not familiar with. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of my research is quite quite lab based. I work on insects. They're quite small, safe, manageable. Uh, yeah. They usually do what you hope they'll do uh, in terms of showing up and breeding at the right time and <laughs> behaving uh, <laughs> when you want them to display some interesting animal behaviour. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I I think I I mean I came I came to biology because I loved I loved the natural world. But I I ended up just maybe had a predisposition I didn't know about to the to the mathematical side of things and mm. I. 
I started to love, you know, making beautiful graphs of all this data that I collected <laughs> and um, t- telling a story through the statistical analysis as well as the the writing and the, yeah. um, you know, physically watching animals being cool and so doing the things that they do. weren't necessarily the kid that goes around turning over rocks to find Kirby Collies, you were more... Um, quantitative to begin with? Um, or both? A bit of both, yeah. I mean, I, I guess I my earliest exposure to biology was going to rock pools in England with my, yeah. my family, looking under rocks, exactly, and I, I still love to do that. I go to the beach more for the rock pools than the, the surfing and whatever. But yeah. um, I do. I guess the kind of mathsy math stuff that I do, there's a, a mix of um, what people call theoretical biology, where you, you try to understand something like evolution, in my case, using <clears throat> mathematical models rather than physically doing stuff with real animals or your hands. Or, um, yeah. <laughs> and, um, but I also, more and more, I'm just starting to work with data that other people collected. For example, data from um, genomes, like these um, series of A's, C's, T's, and G's yeah. that encode the the DNA instruction book that makes all of us who we are mm-hmm. um, and makes, uh, you know, a leopard different from a shark. Yeah. Um, still haven't potted one, by the way. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think maybe I'm just, I'm kind of naturally settling into a mathsy niche. And yeah. it's, I, I think it's, it's not for everyone, but to some extent, everyone has to be at least half familiar with with numbers um, to be an animal behavior scientist. Yeah. Um, so you started off just doing a pure science degree? That's right, yeah. I did. Um, I went to uni to study genetics because oh, I right. very much enjoyed reading Richard Dawkins' book, The Selfish Gene, in mm-hmm. high school. And then I realized that that book's more about um, what people call behavioral ecology or yeah. evolutionary biology rather than um, genetics in the, the, the traditional sense. Yeah. Um, so I switched degrees to zoology um, and I got a degree in zoology from the University of Sheffield and... And by going to university, I got hooked on on insects just because the professors I most enjoyed working with were the insect people. Um, And I did a PhD in insects uh, on bizarre insect reproduction. I studied these these flies um, where the males are not content to just produce one kind of sperm that will look like each other. Mm -hmm. but they produce two different kinds, the big one and a, a much smaller one. It's about six times shorter than the other one. Oh. And for some reason, these little sperm are completely incapable of doing the normal job of a sperm. They can't fertilize any eggs. And it's a mystery why males produce them at all. Because they're, you know, why would you, Yeah. Uh, instead of producing, you know, they're doing the same as every other animal, pretty much. Yeah. Um, they purposely produce sperm that don't work. And it presumably evolved for some reason. Um, and people have come up with a list of, say, 20 reasons that I think it might be. Uh, yeah. it's, I so totally, you, fa- totally failed to the... solve it conclusively. All right. I, I, I disproved some stuff. Okay. Um, <laughs> so I tested some ideas that I thought would be promising, and they, they, didn't, um, they didn't eventuate very well. And yeah. I got some, some kind of correlational evidence in favor of some theories, but nothing, nothing really decisive. And I think it's, uh, it's something that could be solved um, mm-hmm. if someone put their mind to it. And maybe I'll get back to it someday. <laughs> it's like, um, and then I, I moved on to, from fruit flies to, to ants mm-hmm. for my, my postdoc, the first job I had after my PhD. Yeah. So is that um, back home in the UK still? Or were you... that, that was in Copenhagen in Denmark. Okay. So I, I tried pretty hard to stay back home in the UK, but... Um, uh, the job market's quite tough in science, um, and yeah, I, I 
got frustrated with looking for jobs uh, closer to home, so I yeah. heard that Scandinavia is supposed to be quite nice. <laughs> There's documentaries that... I mean, is that tough? Preserved fish. Sort of, I think we were having this conversation the other day about you don't really have a whole lot of control over where your life goes in science. Yeah, is that exactly. Just because yeah. of the job market. That's right, yeah. And I, I think that, I for some people, that that's one of the appeals of it. I think it's, yeah, it's a great opportunity to travel through your work. So I've, I've traveled a lot. For, to work in a, a few different places like Australia and Denmark um, and occasionally you get to get to travel go on some field work or go to a conference and that's that's a great way to travel too yeah it's one of my favorite things about the job but it's 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 not easy to I think it's hard to put down roots and mm. you know, buy a house that kind of thing yeah um, so pros and cons I just sunk a ball everyone I didn't want to make a big deal of it <laughs> oh, oh. <that's> <laughs> But you've ended up in Australia That's right. and at the University of Melbourne now. Was the move to Australia mm -hmm. intentional or...? It, yeah, it was. So I, I really enjoyed my time in Denmark much more than I expected to because mm -hmm. um, I initially moved there more, I think, out of necessity and, the, and for the work. I, it was an interesting... It was a good job opportunity. Um, yeah. But I didn't know much about Denmark or living in, you know, living in a foreign country. Um, but I, I liked it a lot more than I expected and I... I wanted to keep doing it, but maybe not somewhere where I was a second language speaker. And it's, yeah. it's quite, it's, di it's difficult to put down roots with my um, appalling Danish skills. And, um, <laughs> so Australia uh, seemed like an ideal choice. And yeah. Yeah, I've, um, I just got a supposedly permanent job. So I'm suddenly- Supposedly, yeah. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> oh, it's, um, it's, yeah, it's permanent if I uh, pass my probation period. Right. Um <laughs> And it's not like I have to stay here forever, like slavery or something. But <laughs> I guess that's what I mean. Ongoing, I think, is the euphemism people use. Is it still um, the case where, you know, you get your tenure job and then you settle down, you're stuck there forever? Is that still the vibe? Um, I, yeah, academia? I don't know about stuck. Yeah, I think it's, um, yeah, I could, I could and probably will move again at some point. Um, mm. But for the time being, it's... It's a really exciting time. I, for the first time in my career, I'm expected to to lead a reasonably large team, and like um, up, you know, somewhere between two and I don't know, eight people. So you have like your that. own lab now. Yeah, uh, which is it's, it's exciting and intimidating um, to be <laughs> to be responsible for other people for the first time in quite a while. Um, what does your lab have a specialty? What do you do? Uh, I'm still trying to figure that out. It's, it's, <laughs> I think it, it's going to depend a bit on the interests of the people I eventually manage to recruit um, and what they would like to do. Um, but I'm going to do a mix of research on bees and ants and wasps, the social mm -hmm. insects. Yeah. Like trying to work out um, how they how they evolved sociality. So they used to be pretty much the same as all the other insects once upon a time, about 150 million years ago, I think. Yeah. Um, they were solitary. They Each female insect did her own thing, had babies on her own, nobody helping her. And then some of them started um, remaining at their nest and helping their mother to raise extra brothers and sisters instead of leaving to make their own nest. Mm -hmm. um, and we're still not super sure how that happened and why it evolved. It evolved about 10 or 11 times, we think, but... Just in yeah. insects? In insects, yeah. yeah. And possibly a few more times, and depending on who you ask and what definition you use, <laughs> there are some social yeah. uh, um, rodents, the naked mole rats, things like that. Um, I was going to ask what makes something uh, social. Is it just yeah. living in a group enough? No, I guess, yeah, there's people have tried to come up with definitions, um, and yeah, I think it's there's no clear consensus, but 
animals that live in groups that have a kind of a queen, um, I guess is what I think of as the social animals. Mm -hmm. um, so they have a bunch of individuals who by and large don't breed and one individual or one or more individuals who, who do all the reproduction for the rest of the group. Yeah. Um, so yeah, my lab will work a bit on um, questions to do with the evolution of social systems in insects. Yeah. Another, another thing with social insects that I find really interesting is how on earth do they manage to produce um, the queen and the worker using the same blueprint, the same genome. Mm -hmm. So humans um, face a, a similar struggle, although probably much simpler. We have to produce um, men and women using basically the same set of genes with the exception of the Y chromosome, which is male specific. Mm -hmm. All of our genes spend half their time in a man and half their time in a woman. Um, and maybe the uh, evolution is, is favoring different traits. Um, depending on what sex the gene ends up in. So for example, um, it's your go, I think. The uh, <laughs> X thing. Oh yeah, go shot. for it. Yeah. What is it called? Uh, the spider, I think. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, All right, I can't miss this one. Score, nice, nice. work. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah the, the queen, Queen can live for up to 30 years in some, some ants and termites, I think. So, whereas the workers are pretty short-lived and expendable. And you've probably seen those bizarre images of the, like a queen termite. She kind of looks like the queen in Aliens with this huge yeah. distended egg-filled blob at the back. That, um, whereas the workers are like pretty nimble little mobile things that spend their time building the nest, caring for baby termites, that kind of stuff. Yeah. So you have to do these, produce these two completely different bodies that, you know, as different as a hamster and a whale almost, <laughs> using the genome that is like, you know, in queens some of the time and in workers the yeah. rest of the time. So is that what um, you're researching in? Yeah. Genes, that's it. Yeah. So like, the, the genes switched on and off? Exactly. Yeah. So there's probably some clever, they probably evolved some clever mechanisms of doing that. So making, making, you know, one gene have two different functions, or maybe they have a set of genes which are only turned on in workers and a, a set that are only turned on in queens. Yeah. Maybe it's more complicated still. Um, we don't really know, so I'm, I'm working on that a bit too. Yeah. Um, a lot of my other research is about sexual selection, which is um, Darwin's second big idea after natural selection. Mm -hmm. um, natural selection oh, is... Yeah, the ways that animals survive to pass on genes. So yeah, why, so, how does so sexual selection sec differ then? Yeah, sexual selection is about—it's um, technically just a, another kind of natural selection. Um, I potted one of yours, so it's your. Ah oh, yes. Um, Did you? Yeah. Okay. Good. <laughs> um, yeah, sexual selection is selection that arises from competition between individuals of the same sex for access to individuals of the opposite sex or their gametes, which is their eggs or their sperm. Yeah. So, so if you produce more babies, yeah, pass that's right. genes, yeah. So Yeah, the kind of Richard Dawkins-style genes-eye view of sexual selection is like there might be some, uh, some gene in your body which influences, say you're a deer, uh, this gene influences whether you grow really big antlers or really yeah. small antlers, and the big antler gene... Um, causes the bodies that it inhabits to um, be more su successful fighting over females and yeah. therefore in future generations it becomes more common and the species evolves longer antlers. Yeah. Um, so I do research uh, in that kind of area. But not on ants? And no, um, that's, yeah, I mostly use um, solitary insects for that because um, right. because things like ants and bees have... Um, 
have a quite complicated mating systems, which mm -hmm. are cool in their own right. They're just such a pain to study. For example, um, bees, honeybees mate um, at these weird places that nobody totally understands called <laughs> drone congregation sites, which are these like, they're a special place. It'll be like 30 meters up in the middle of a particular field. Um, and the, the male bees, the drones, just go there every day and hover around for a bit and hope that queen bees will show up. Um, and then they chase her around way up in the sky trying to mate with her yeah. um, and that's and there's kind of sexual selection operating on the male bees to who's the fastest and best at locating these queens yeah. that show up once in a while um, would, are we trying to put the same balls which one do you guys <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm really struggling to concentrate um, <laughs> I'm, I'm these ones am I yeah I'm for those ones oh okay. yeah hmm <laughs> Ah. No wonder we're both doing so well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, I'll switch. Yeah. I'll do okay. Do you want you want the stripes? Yeah. yeah. Okay. I don't know. I always call them bigs and smalls. Okay. Stripes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> this is a real yeah. clash of the titans. Yeah. Pool game. Because do you mean the is the white part big and small or the cold part? I never part? understood yeah. it either, but yeah. that's what they used to call it back in the yeah. holes in Penrith. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so right. some people might not realize that there's non-social bees yeah that's true yeah there's uh, colonies. plenty of bees uh, bees are great they um i'm hoping to study bees more and more because I've, I've mostly worked on ants um just because they don't fly they don't sting you but bees are really interesting um, oh, um shot. trying not to swear under my breath when i miss <laughs> <laughs> the microphone can probably pick that up um yeah, bees, um, they display kind of every kind of sociality from being completely solitary to kind of moderate forms of sociality where they, they don't help each other out, but they all live together in a big colony, kind of yeah. like, like a lot of birds do when you, you see them on, living on the cliffs together or something. Mm -hmm. Or um, kind of quite simple cooperative sociality where there'll be a small nest with a, even like as, as few as one or two helpers helping their mum to raise additional babies. Ah, um, uh, something about all again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all the way up to um, the kind of super advanced social bees, like honeybees being most famous, where they build this great big colony with you know, 60,000 of them, um, with uh, hyper-specialized workers and queens. Like the, the queen bee is... She's quite different looking to the worker bees. She's bigger. She has a lot more eggs. Mm -hmm. um, she doesn't have those baskets on her legs that they use to collect pollen. Right. Um, she can sting you as many times as she wants because oh, the cool. queen, queen <laughs> bees have lethal fights over who's going to be the next queen uh, where they, they try to sting each other to death and uh, individual queens might have to fight more than one other queen. So unlike the workers who, who die when they sting you because their stings have backward pointing spines that cause the sting to stay um, embedded in you and ripped off the bee when it stings you. Mm -hmm. um, the queens don't have that. Um, where am I going with this? <laughs> um, <laughs> they were just contrasting different sociality in yeah. bees. Uh, yeah. So as well as working on <laughs> the genetics of sociality, you also work on uh, chemical signaling. That's right, in yeah. Um, I'm just going to take another go because I, I need all the help I can get. Let's go. <laughs> I'm lost. I don't know where we're up. <laughs> oh, it was great. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, so chemical communication. Yeah, I am um, in my Danish job. Um, the main thing I was interested in was queen pheromones, which mm -hmm. are special odors produced by the queen and mostly only by the queen. Um, and 
since the 60s, we've known that the honeybee has the special queen pheromone that does all sorts of cool stuff. So yeah. the, the bees can recognize the queen by her unique overpowering smell. And if you ever see the queen in a hive, she's often surrounded by worker bees in what's called a retinue, where they cluster around her and they're attracted to her smell and they kind of they keep her safe and they lick her and they pass the smell around the colony to tell all the other bees that the queen's still alive and well. Just on a tangent, is mm. am I right in understanding this is how you get a beard of bees? Yeah, I believe it is. Yeah, yeah, I think you, yeah. <laughs> so we, in the 60s, yeah, somebody figured out what this special queen chemical was and you can buy it um, from <laughs> beekeeper supply shops for like five bucks. It's great. Right. And you can smear it all over yourself and make a beekini or a beard of bees. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Um, but yes, what were you doing? Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, they and it, it it also keeps all the worker bees um, sterile, so that so long as their mum's around, they don't try to lay eggs of their own. Mm -hmm. um, and when her pheromone is gone, um, a lot of plucky worker bees do lay a few eggs. Um, and it, a lot of people had suspected for a really long time that. Um, the ants and the wasps and the termites and all the other social insects besides bees have um, queen pheromones of their own um, based on kind of indirect evidence and observations. Um, but we didn't know for sure and we didn't know what these chemicals were. Yeah. And in my Danish postdoc, uh, I was trying to find a bunch of new queen pheromones from these other social insects. And I, I found the first ant one and together with... Um, some Belgian collaborators, we found the first wasp one and the first bumblebee one. Okay. Um, and since then, an, another group has found a termite one and some more ant ones. And yeah, yeah. It's, it's taken off. So that's, you can now do cool um, <coughs> comparative research. So you ask, like, are these pheromones the same thing or are they different? Um, um, did they all evolve from the same ancestral queen pheromone that yeah. everyone used? or? They have multiple origins, like they've evolved many times, like just like sociality itself has. So what's happening is that the queens are giving off this you know, smell, essentially, yeah. and that's stopping other individuals in the colony from reproducing. Yeah, that's right. Kind of like a airborne contraceptive pill. Um, <laughs> yeah. You should put that in the title of one of your papers. Yeah. Really? Um, and people, yeah, the other thing that interests me quite a lot, a lot of people interpret these queen pheromones as a kind of brain control, mind, you know, uh, brainwashing um, yeah. uh, system where the queen controls all these dumb workers and tricks them into working for her and sterilizes them and, and makes sure that, that she's the only one laying eggs. Yeah. Um, but I think it's more like um, an honest signal. So just like you might buy a big fancy house and a big fancy car to show everyone how wealthy you are, yeah. I think the queen produces a copious, extravagant amount of pheromone and to show off to the worker bees, I'm really here, I'm really laying lots of eggs for you guys. Yeah. So it's in your best interests to be good workers and help me out because I'm an egg-laying machine and uh, I'm, I'm genetically related to you. So um, help, you know, stick with me and we'll all pre pass our genes on to the next generation. Yeah. Um, I mean, it so, makes sense because yeah. rather than going all the effort of passing on your own genes, you let someone else pass on those same genes. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's true, yeah. Yeah, so people, um, yeah, there's um, a big branch of evolutionary biology called kin selection, um, yep. which is about uh, trying to explain social behaviors, things like um, bees giving up their own reproduction to help somebody else reproduce. Yep. So altruistic behavior. 
um, which at first sight is very confusing to Darwin's theories of natural selection, you know, survival of the fittest, you know, um, mm. everyone at, looking out for themselves. Um, so how does intentionally never having children in, result in, in passing on your genes more effectively than not doing that? And um, yeah, Darwin himself was super puzzled by bees. But we think that they do it, they reproduce indirectly. So the, the queen is the mother of the workers. So whenever they help her produce extra offspring, they get extra brothers and sisters. And your brothers and sisters contain some of the same genes as you do because you both inherited them from your shared relatives, like your mother and father. Yeah. And this, yeah, this British biologist, William Hamilton, um, first argued in the 60s that um, if you if you behave altruistically to, a, to one of your relatives and they produce so many extra offspring that it compensates the, the loss of your own offspring from you know, giving your help to them instead of yourself, um, you can pass on your genes indirectly provided that you're closely related enough to that individual. So Hamilton came up with these great um, relatedness coefficients for all the different kinds of relatives. So your, like your four siblings are related by 0.5, whereas your cousins, it's more like an eighth. So you should you should care about the well-being of your siblings four times more than you care about your cousins because yeah. the uh, relatedness coefficients. So that your cousins only carry an eighth of your genes, whereas your siblings carry half of your genes. So yeah, yeah. be nicer to your siblings than your cousins. All right, so you've got one ball yeah. left and the eight ball. Is it my go? I can't remember. Yes, it is. Yeah. Isn't it? yeah. All right, let's see. I had those all lined up, ready uh, to go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> As you were saying about bringing it back around to the mathematical side of things, you're mm -hmm. using maths to yeah. sort of quantify how much genetic information an individual can pass on to the next generation and what's the most optimal way they can do that. Yeah, certainly that's definitely that, that way of thinking underlies pretty much the last 40 or 50 years of social insect biology. Yeah, this idea that um, the bees are essentially doing... Um, little fitness calculations. They're like, hmm, should I go and reproduce on my own? Should I help my mother? Should I, you know, how, how related am I to those, those, the children of my mother? Like, which depends on whether they're your full siblings or your half siblings. Yeah. Um, you might, like matrilineal half siblings, because you might have different fathers to some of their children. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, people have applied that theory to all sorts of stuff and, uh, it's it's generally been very successful. It was famously criticised in 2010 in a in a big um, scientist yeah uh, slap fight between <laughs> some uh, some very famous scientists at Harvard and everybody else essentially. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I think yeah I think it's uh, there's no clear no clear winner in that. I think everyone looks bad. But <laughs> um, just slap fights are yeah. as exciting as they <laughs> yeah, sound. Exactly. Though, right? more Produced more heat than light. Passive aggression. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's quite. I, the whole thing's pretty funny. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, but so one area where all of this, like um, worker, like the idea that worker insects are adding up the consequences of their actions and doing mathematics to work out what they should do is it's shown very neatly by this field called worker policing, oh. which is really interesting. So um, a lot of insects, like I hinted that the workers sometimes lay eggs, but generally they're very sterile. So in, in a lot of species, you get a, a small number of workers who lay eggs 
And by and large, the other workers don't seem to like that. Like if they find the eggs, they um, eat them to destroy them. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they find the, that worker who laid the eggs and punish them very dramatically. So in ants, they might um, just chop it up into pieces to kill it. Um, <laughs> or, they, or they do a kind of non-lethal punishment where six other ants will grab its legs and hold it in place for 48 hours or something Jeez. like this. Kind of like, <laughs> like putting it in prison or something. Um, and uh, as a kind of like, yeah, we know what you're doing. Yeah, and we're going <laughs> to, yeah, take the time out kind of thing. Yeah, I meant, meant to do that. <laughs> yeah, it was, looked like it was on purpose. <laughs> um, there, yeah, the, all of this ham mathematics deriving from William Hamilton's work, whom I mentioned, um, they, sorry, I can't play pool and think. <laughs> yeah, this is a great you, idea. Yeah, if you're, if you're, highly related to the other workers in the colony because they're all your full siblings, then it's fine, let them reproduce. It's, it's actually good for you, um, for your fitness. But if they're mostly your half-siblings, they're, they're only carrying a quarter of your genes on average, mm -hmm. um, and you'd much prefer that your mother reproduces because your mother has half of your genes, your half-sisters have a quarter of your genes, so you're more closely related to your your siblings, like your mother's children, than you are to your nephews and nieces, which is your sister's children. Um, so you so want your like worker bees yeah. and worker ants mm -hmm. share more genes with the queen yeah. than they do with the other workers. Yeah, so, so that's they're better right. off making sure the queen reproduces rather than their. Yeah, so in, in species where yeah workers want in an evolutionary sense where they where they want the queen to reproduce and not those other workers yeah that's the ones where you find most worker policing like they're very they're active on it and you also find lower rates of worker reproduction so the workers know that their eggs will just be killed so they don't even bother laying them yeah. very, very much but there are and in those species where workers are high, like they're more related to their sisters than their mother um then they just let their siblings reproduce and there's yeah. no policing yeah um there are some species where it's thought that um that so sometimes the queen mates uh with a single male meaning that the workers are all four siblings and in some other nest she, she uh she mates with multiple males and her daughters are, are more they have multiple fathers and the worker policing happens depending on how many times the mother has mated uh, <laughs> which is pretty neat so they yeah. is there such thing as like Police bees, you know, like the soldier ants and that's a great question. Ants. Yeah, <laughs> they're police ants. Yeah, that's right. So yeah, a former colleague of mine uh, in Copenhagen looked at exactly that. So he wanted to know if any I old friend. That was a silly question. Any, yeah, that was a good I, one. Yeah, no, it's a great question. Yeah, like, is there a specialized police force who do all the policing? Like, yeah. there's like three or four, you know, ants whose job it is to do all of the biting and egg eating, or is it, um, or is it like a kind of. Um, like a concerned citizen thing where any random bee can become a policer when the need arises. And he, he found it was the first one. There's a specialized police force, which is awesome. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, who'd have thought it? Yeah, ants, ants have a police force. Yeah. All right, you have a chance to sink you all. That was, <laughs> that was amazing. Can't believe this is on radio. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, Luke just won the game in the most amazing shot ever seen. And I guess we should finish up yeah. on that because we can't top that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. All right. Fantastic. Thanks very much. It was fun. No worries. Thanks for coming along. Yeah. Thanks. You've been 
listening to In Situ Science. My name is James O'Henlin. You can follow me on Twitter with the handle at JMOHenlin. You can follow In Situ Science with the handle at In Situ Science. Check out our website at InSituScience.com and we'll see you next time on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs>